I think we can all agree that the world that we live in is filled with amazing things. It's filled with amazing people. It's a pretty great world, even though it's still a broken world. People are amazing. Experiences are amazing. The world is an amazing, amazing place. That said, these amazing people and these amazing things make terrible saviors. Because in the end, they don't deliver. They don't deliver ultimately. And so, even though there are many great, wonderful things, they're terrible saviors. For example, relationships are wonderful, but they can't offer lasting fulfillment, even the best of relationships that we have here. Another example would be fitness. Fitness is important, but once again, it can't offer ultimate deliverance in the end. And by deliverance, I mean salvation. Technology is wonderful, but cryonics promises to, quote, prevent death. I think that's, in my humble opinion, a $200,000 wishful thought. And then there's religion. There are so many different religions. And every religion has some kind of savior or saviors. And yet, in the history of humanity, in the history of religion, in the history of the world, there's only been one religion that has offered objective, verifiable, historic proof that it delivers. The Lord Jesus Christ made many claims. He was crucified. He died an objective, verifiable death, and he was bodily, objective, verifiably, historically, raised from the dead. Many great things, many great people. Let's praise God for all of them, but let's make sure we understand they make terrible saviors unless they are the one true savior. Let's close in prayer. Let's not do that. That gets us ready to hear from Jesus making that, that, that claim. Because that's what he does in John chapter 10. When he refers to himself as the good shepherd, he means the good shepherd as in the true deliverer. The true savior. The one and only. And he will contrast himself with all others. The one and only shepherd who can bring his sheep eternal life. So when you read about the good shepherd, it's in the context of eternal life. You'll see, think good shepherd is the good deliverer, the good savior, the one and only one who leads his sheep in eternal life. It's an amazing, amazing text. It's an amazing reality. John chapter 10 Think as we read this together about assurance and where Christian assurance can come from, where assurance should come from, where you can have confidence, where you can stop chasing all of these other saviors, enjoy all of the good things, but know that there is one who you can trust to the very end, no matter what. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only true, authentic powerful deliverer who delivers. Now we should close in prayer again. It's just more sermons. John 10. Let's go ahead and get, get to work in John 10. We looked at the first five verses last week. We saw some impressive realities about Jesus. Today we're going to, to rudely interrupt and jump in at verse 6, and we're going to see if we can get through verses 6 to 30. So John 10, we're going to start in verse 6. As you're turning there, maybe just one warning. And the warning is this. The Jesus we're going to hear from and think about and meditate upon may very well likely not be the Jesus you thought he was. But I promise you, he will be better than you thought he was. Okay, you might you, you, you might get your boat rocked a little bit is what I'm saying. But it's not because you're going to find out Jesus is 
worse. It's because you're going to find out he is better and sometimes that's shocking and it's unsettling. But Jesus is a savior who saves. And it's amazing, amazing. John chapter 10. Let's go ahead and dive in. No outline for this morning. We had a detailed outline last week. Let's just follow the narrative this week. But along the way, you can make all kinds of observations about who Jesus is. Jesus is this. Jesus is this. Therefore, I can. Okay, let's look at verse 6. This figure of speech, that is Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. That's what we learned about in the first five verses. This figure of speech, Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. He's talking to the religious leaders, and he explained he's the good shepherd, and he explained it in different kinds of details, but they don't understand. And that is ironic because he's been saying already in the first five verses, and he will continue to say that his sheep hear his voice, which is to say those who belong to him do understand. And here he's making himself clear, and they don't understand. So keep that in mind as we go to verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So he's changing the analogy just a little bit, but he's making the same point. I am the door of the sheep. We know what doors are for or gates are for. They're for going in and they're for going out. It's to gain entrance in this case. Verse 9 is going to interpret this for us as he's the door of salvation. He's the door of eternal life. Jesus is saying, I am the way to eternal life. It's all about me. It's in and through me. Straightforward. Jesus is that. How about a contrast to see the point even better in verse 8? Look there. All, by way of contrast, if, if I am the door, all, he uses universal terminology, all who came before me, are thieves and robbers. And to help me understand that, what I wrote uh, in, my, uh, in, in the text, in the margin, is I wrote it this way in verse 8. All who came before me, now let's bracket something. That is claiming to be the door, claiming to be the way, claiming to be the ultimate shepherd, claiming to be the deliverer, are thieves and robbers. I am the door, And all of those others, any others who claim to be the door, are thieves and robbers. It's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be startling. It's a huge claim. Notice Jesus doesn't say, there have been many others. Some have been good. Some have been mediocre. And some you just can't trust. Jesus isn't finding his place among many. As the one true Son of God all throughout John, as the legitimate deliverer, he's making the point, I'm I'm the way to heaven. I'm the door. I'm the one that leads to eternal life. And all of the others who make that kind of claim, they're immoral. They're thieves. They're robbers. He uses morality terminology. Now again, this is, this is a time for you to say, oh, that, that's what Christ teaches? That's, that's what he says? If I'm, if I'm a Christian, I believe that. Yeah. Well, I hope he's a good one. I, I hope he doesn't just make salvation possible. I mean, if, if we've got to put all of our eggs in one basket, I, I hope he's the kind of deliverer that doesn't just make deliverance possible. And we're going to see that he, he delivers on deliverance in an amazing, startling kind of way. Okay, let's keep going now in verse 8. I just skipped a page of notes. This is just terrible. Only so much time. Verse 8 goes on to say, but the sheep did not listen to them. So it's not the only way to prove authenticity, but it is a a way to prove authenticity. Okay, The sheep, those that are going to believe in me, they they didn't listen to those other ones. See, sheep and shepherds have a unique personality. He's already uh, a a relationship. He's already established that. And so those other ones, they, they didn't listen to them. And by the way, in our text, toward the end of the chapter, many believe in Jesus. 
So if it helps you, you could even write in your margin next to verse 8, verse 42. And many believed in him there. See, the contrast is you have all of these other faux shepherds, faux gates, okay, fake ways, fake gates. The sheep didn't listen. But in this case, when the true door shows up, many are going to listen, i.e. they're going to believe. He's the legitimate one. Okay, now again in verse 9 we have repetition. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. See, that's why we knew what it meant earlier. This is for salvation. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's Ezekiel 34 talk. Okay, that, that, that's God's promise to bring an ultimate shepherd. They'll go in and they'll go out. They'll have the freedom to thrive, right? Life, health. This is what sheep would dream for. This is what they would want. This is, this is their, their needs being met. So this in and out fine pasture is, is symbolic of, of salvation, deliverance, safety. Ezekiel thirty four twelve talk. How about verse 10? The thief, by way of contrast, right? He's going to save and give pasture. They can go in and out and enjoy themselves. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's lots of simple things going on, but one thing I really like to do is I like to circle words and, and circle another word and see the connections and see the contrast. And whether you're a circler and a line drawer or not, but please see what Jesus is intentionally doing. The other ones who claim to be ways to heaven are killers, right? They kill, he says. And I bring life. Not just life, but abundant life. The kind of life you'd want with joy and peace and confidence. Abundant life. My, my grand, grandmother, my grandma, Abendroth, Erna Abendroth, she was a mean German. So it's not my fault. <laughs> but she loved me, so I was thankful for that. She would always talk about stingy. It was like her favorite word was stingy. So I say stingy. Nobody says stingy anymore. But Jesus isn't a stingy Savior. He's an abundant Savior. He gives everything. He meets the need and, and as if it's possible to, to, to and then some. It's not a hair of, by the hair of your chinny chin chin. It's not a barely get in. It's not a, oh, maybe I'm in and maybe I'm not, I'm out. It's not that at all. There's no need for nervousness. Abundant life, eternal life. It doesn't get any better. It can't get any better. It meets the need, right? He's not a stingy shepherd. This is really helpful, again, by way of contrast. In chapter 9, you have someone who came to believe in Jesus and he was persecuted for it by the religious leaders. His personal experience in the then and there we know wouldn't have felt very abundant. Right? His day-to-day -day living went to, from in a sense, bad to worse. He, he went to, in the here and now, the stingy life. Because he was excommunicated. He was persecuted. But Jesus is saying, those who believe in me, those who trust in me, they have the abundant life, the salvation, in part because it's not limited to the here and now. It's the hope that we have that gets us through the here and now, even if it's the hard times in the here and now. And, and, you know, and that'll preach. Point being, you, you need to take that in your heart and, and you need to absorb that in your life and realize all of these other deliverers don't ultimately deliver. 
They make the promises to deliver. But the only place you're going to find ultimate deliverance and an ultimate abundant life is going to be in Christ. The door. Let's make sure we do see as well that Jesus, Jesus is the one who labels those who claim to be a way to heaven and are something other than him, they're killers. They're killers. Sometimes called wolves in sheep's clothing elsewhere. But it doesn't matter how nice, how serene, how smiley, how whatever, Jesus labels them killers. He's answering the question, what must I do to gain eternal life? And it's found in the only Savior, among the others who are thieves and robbers. It's the zillion-dollar question. Now, the, the bad offer, in verse 11, the bad offers a good opportunity to see how good Jesus is more clearly. How about verse 11? I am the good shepherd. Even, even the ultimate good shepherd, Ezekiel 34, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. See, those other guys, they're, they're life stealers. They're killers. The good shepherd, unlike them, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now we're on to something. Now, this is totally different. This is amazing. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep, in place of the sheep, as a substitute in place of the sheep. Verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep. See, they don't really belong to him. We're, we're going to see we belong to Jesus. He owns us. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm zeroing in on verse 12. That other guy doesn't own them. Well, the opposite is true. Jesus does own us. We belong to Him. And that helps us understand verse 13. The hired hand doesn't care. Jesus cares. He, we belong to Him. He cares for us. And therefore, He, again, guarantees us safe passage. It's a guarantee. At all costs, even the cost of himself and his own life. And we're going to talk more about that in a little while. Fourteen says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. We talked about that last week, but it's good to revisit it. If no one else cares, he cares. If no one else understands, he understands. Right? He, we, we belong. He knows us. It'd be an interesting study to do a whole series, or a whole sermon at least, or a whole study on what it means to know God and what it means for God to know us, because it's used in different ways in the Bible. You know, for starters, you don't want God to know you, right? People say, well, God knows my heart. Oh, it's terrible, right? But the reality is He does know your heart, and that's why He provides a Savior, <laughs> because you, you are a bad deliverer. And so he loves you in spite of what your heart says, <laughs> in spite of knowing you, if that's the right way to put it, but you get the idea. And he, and he provides salvation through his son. And so now this is, this is different. He knows us as in he cares. It's a relational term. He, term. he loves us. It's like in, in Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew. That's why Bible scholars say you could translate that at Translate that for loved. 
You know, in the Old Testament, so-and-so knew their spouse. It's, it's, it's relational. We belong to Jesus, and so He knows us in a, in a close, caring way that, that's unmatched by any of the other faux kind of saviors or shepherds. And the great thing is we know Him too. And there's something unique. We, we, we know about Him, but it goes beyond that. We, we, know, we know Him. He's not against us. We're in the same family now. We're related to Him. This is great stuff. This, this is better than 10 weeks of therapy. Because really, this, this helps you understand how to, how to deal with anything. I mean, these are, these are the promises when, when it's the darkest day and you, you just need to say out loud, maybe. I belong to Him. He cares for me. He knows me. I know Him. This is a great, great reality for us. Our tendency is, yeah, I know all that stuff, but... And I want to say, but nothing. My problem is I know this, but I don't really know it. Or to, to take this and then meditate and use it for, for prayer fueling, if you will. God, help me. I know that this is true. Help me, help it to, to, to permeate my heart and my soul because I really need encouragement and comfort. But it's got to, it's got to ultimately come from here because otherwise it's going to come from some other faker savior. It's not ultimately going to give you abundant life. It's what we're all looking for. We all want abundant life. But all of the promises are going to be not kept ultimately except from this one. Let's go on to 15. So knowing that this relating personal reality is stressed and underscored. Let's make sure we see this is a shocking thing that may still surprise us in verse 15. Just as... This knowing happens just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I don't really even know where to start. See, it was all good and encouraging a moment ago, and now all of a sudden it's meant to be good and encouraging on a cosmic level. The eternal Son, who's been enjoying a perfect relationship with His Father forever. There's no hostility whatsoever. There's no conflict. There are no skeletons there are no issues there are no reservations there are none of those things it's a free and thriving positive relationship and jesus is saying to us we we share that kind of good relationship I don't even know how to try to parse it other than the way I just tried. It's not because we deserve it. There's conflict involved. And this is all wrapped up in more than just our verse because Jesus is going to lay his life down and that has to do with atonement and that has to do with reconciliation and all of those things. But he's not elaborating on that now. Oh, man. Jesus is a better Savior than some of us even realize. 15 goes on to say, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I don't steal life. I give my life and I do it for the sheep. That tells us how much he cares, but it doesn't only tell us how much he cares. Let's not do either or. It tells us how much he cares. I lay my life down. I give the greatest thing. I lay my life down for the sheep. It tells us how much he cares, but it also tells us how he cares. How does God care? Back in John 3, how does God choose to love? 
Sometimes we want to tell God how he needs to choose to love. No, God cares. God loves by having his son do what he just said he does. He lays his life down. So the ultimate. So he cares greatly for his sheep. And he cares specifically in a way for his sheep by giving his life. And we're going to see it's so you can have life. That's how he cares. He's not a life taker. He's a life giver. All of these other religious leaders who say this is the way to heaven and it's not the way to heaven, they're life takers. He's the life giver. It's amazing. I lay my life down, one of the best words in the whole Bible we like to say, for the sheep. Right? In place of. That's why we use the word substitution. Some people who claim to be Christians say that they don't believe in substitution. I don't know how you do. I think you're believing in a faux shepherd. In place of another. I do this for you. For those who would believe. In place of. It's extraordinary because then our sins can be dealt with because he's dying in our place. And then he's going to be raised for us. In our place. It's for us. The word for is, is a critical word. It's a word of love. It's a word of kindness. It's a word of compassion. It's a word definitely of substitution. Substitutionary atonement. There it is. This is how, this is how you could be guaranteed eternal life. Okay, let's take a break. A breath. <laughs> I mean, it's intense, but it's not meant to be intense in a bad way. But it is in the context of a conflict. So I kind of feel a little bit of that. I, I hear people sometimes say that, well, our, the Christian message, message, you know, in no way can it be negative. But you can't read the Bible without seeing the platform that provides Jesus for speaking the positive is more often than not, against the contrast of the negative. To really understand, to really understand, you have to say and see all of these other ways are not ways. Oh, that's negative. This is the way. And it makes all the sense in the world. And Jesus is clear about it. So please, right, the urging is trust in Him and not in all of these things that are going to lead to death. It's what makes Him the good one. Makes the message good news. 16. Now let's move on. And I have other sheep. So others who belong to him, others he lays his life down for. We get that from our context. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will... Notice... Not might, but will. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. What's he talking about? He's talking about the simple reality he's addressing the Jews. But salvation, the Savior of the world not just of the Jews, of Jew and Gentile, all nations, is Jesus. So, step number one, Jews. But it's going to broaden. He's not the Jewish Savior only. He's the Gentile Savior. And in chapter 11, we actually get a, get a flavor of this. Uh, Caiaphas, in chapter 11, says um, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also all who are gathered uh, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad non-Jews people don't talk about it as much anymore but there was a day not that many years ago where people would debate whether or not there are two people of God two peoples of God or one people of God and all kinds of fighting back and forth this is a relevant passage. You could say two people of God as far as in the Old Testament, nation of Israel, and you get to the New Testament. Now it's all nations and it's different. 
But I would never want to say, ultimately, in the end, there are two people of God. A lot of Christians said things like that and sort of stepped in something they didn't want to step in, and now there's a whole convoluted kind of thing. There's the heavenly people that are going to be in heaven, and there are the earthly people that are going to be in earth, and they're going to forever be separate, and now we have two new covenants and all kinds of what, what are commonly deemed today as shenanigans. Ultimately, in the end, there's only one. We were looking forward to Him coming in the old. He comes and He's the one and only shepherd, the one and only deliverer. And to say that there is another way is actually a death sentence. Right? It's to say there's another door. So, He's maybe greater than we even imagined. One flock, one shepherd. Verse 17 says, For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I laid down my life, that I may take it up again. It wasn't that the Father wasn't loving him up until that point in time. You don't get that impression from any other text. But there's something unique, culminating, anticipating this great work that he came to do. He was sent to do this and he's going to lay down his life that he might, that he may take it up again. The father's pleased with that. The father loves him because of that, because he's the loyal, obedient, faithful son, which by the way, he has always been the faithful, loyal, obedient son. How about 18? No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. That's going to become pretty important pretty soon because he's going to be crucified, right? And he's going to look like a fake savior who can't save. So he's making it clear to these people here. You already know this and I already know this, but we need to see. This is according to plan. No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, on my own initiative. I'm doing it. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge, I want to come back to that, this charge I have received from my Father. So it's going to help them. It's going to help get them through that, especially that tween time when it looks like he's a fail savior. Nobody's going to take my life. I'm going to lay it down and I have authority to do that. I have authority to raise it up again. Oh, and by the way, there's the authority of my Father. So I have authority, and I'm under authority, but it's going to happen. It's exciting. This charge I have received from my Father to do, to do this. How about, how about that? You know, this is like, this is juicy stuff. He, the Son, has been charged, commissioned, given a duty, given a responsibility, given a task, given a work. Father sends the Son to do it. And He is going to do it. The more you think about this one, just the more exciting, the more amazing, the more mysterious perhaps it gets. Then you start looking at other passages and you start seeing how all of this reaches into eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1. The Father in eternity past It's going to give the Son a task to do. The Son is going to agree to the task. The Spirit's going to be involved in applying it. And the triune God is a redeeming God. And Jesus says, this charge that I've been given to do, I will, no matter what, absolutely, unstoppably, because I have the authority, I will do it. Hallelujah. You go, yes. So, where does your assurance come from? (laughs) I hope it comes from outside of you. I hope it doesn't come from your health and fitness. I hope it doesn't come from your good relationships that you have now. Assurance has to come ultimately in, in the triune God, in the commissioning of the Son and the application of the Spirit. I mean, this, it it doesn't get better. But let's keep going. So that's 18. 
you know, maybe what I want to do is just take 18 and, and reach out just a little bit and look at a couple of other verses that would relate. This charge I have received from my Father. I know I've already said it, but I want you to see two verses that help us see the charge. Okay? So if you would, look at verses 15, and then we're going to look at 28. So 15 and 28 together, the charge, okay? The the Father gives me this charge to lay my life down, to take it up again. I've been given authority to do that. That's the charge. But since we're not going to see all the verses this morning, and maybe you're not connecting all the dots, I want to help you connect some dots. He will succeed. He will succeed in accomplishing that charge. So how about 15? Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Okay, here we go. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay my life down for the sheep. We have all got that. We've all got that in our minds. I lay my life down for the sheep. That's part of the charge. He's supposed to do that. But if you would look at verse 28, and in about every Bible I ever use, I draw a circle around 15 and a circle around 28 because they're related. 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So let's read those back to back again. End of 15, I lay down my life for the sheep, right? Substitutionary atonement, Jesus lays his life down for the sheep. What's the effect? What result comes? 28, I give them eternal life. That is the sheep he laid his life down for and they will never perish. If you're saying, Pat, are you saying that those he lays his life down will never perish? That is what I'm saying. Those he lays his life down for will never perish. Now that might not fit into your current system. You know, you might be having a a little moment right now saying, does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. And take it home. Think about it. Meditate on it. Think about the implications. Think about how it might need to alter other things. But also think about where assurance ultimately comes from. Yes, you must believe. And apart from faith in Christ, you will perish. You must believe. But do notice that ultimate assurance, based upon those two statements put together, he lays his life down, and those he lays his life down for will never perish. Assurance comes from the work of Christ, as well as its intent, what it did and what it does. I haven't believed that my whole life. but it's inescapable in John 10. Wow. So that would mean there was an intention. Yeah, there's an intention. That would mean the atonement actually atoned. It didn't make atonement possible. It actually satisfied That would mean substitution is actually substitutionary. That the intent was to die for Pat. So that he, Pat, would never perish. Substitutionary atonement. This, by the way, is why some people don't like substitutionary atonement. Because it accomplishes too much in their opinion. And I want it to accomplish much. Real atonement. I want to go to bed tonight and rest in the fact that Jesus didn't make atonement possible for me. He didn't make eternal life possible for me. He secured eternal life for me by His work. It's going to mess with some of your minds. 
Okay, now we're going to take questions. No, we're not. We're going to move on. But I would be happy to entertain questions and talk about this. But it, it's... There's intentionality. It's infallible, the intention is. Assurance. Other religions don't offer assurance. You should have assurance. Sealed by the Spirit. We can talk about all the other ones, but for today, I just want you to think assurance because of the intent of Christ's work. By the way, Robert Bellarmine is probably the, the, the most, he, he, in my mind, he's the most well-known, capable, fiery apologist around the time of the Reformation for the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so Robert Bellarmine, 1542 to 1621, writing with the authority of the Catholic Church, said this, the principal heresy of Protestants is that saints may obtain to a certain assurance of their gracious and pardoned state before God. The principal heresy is that you can have assurance of salvation. I like Bellarmine. I hate his theology. But I really like Bellarmine because he's clear. The crux of the matter is, can you be sure? The crux of the matter is, can you have assurance that's genuine assurance? And he understood well enough to know that if you can, Romanism can't be true. Okay? And if you can, then the Protestants are right. Because it's based solely on what Jesus accomplished, and it is effective and effectual, if you want to use those terms. And so, it's, it's a salvation that saves. And people can have assurance, and they can rest, and they don't have to be led by fear and manipulation that leads, by the way, to death. Assurance is really the crux of the issue. Can you go to bed tonight saying, since Jesus died for me, I have guaranteed eternal life. Read John 10. It's awesome. But see, the conflict helps you maybe bring it into, in, into focus better. Oh, so that was the issue. Yeah, that was the issue. It's exciting. Okay, some response. We need to wrap this up. Verse 19 says, there, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Oh, by the way, I was thinking, I, I wanted to name my dog Bellarmine. But I don't think anybody else would go for it. Because I, I've heard at least in, in, the old, in the old world, that was kind of how people did things, you know. The Catholics would name their dog Luther, um, right? Calvin, dumb dog. Knox, Knox would be a cool dog name. But then I would love the dog, and I hate Bellarmine. No, I <laughs> Oh, I always think next time you drive by Robert Bellarmine Church on 120th Pacific, just think the arch enemy of assurance. Let's name our church after him. Pretty amazing. Where were we? 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? 21 others said, These are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So they, they, they don't know what to do with this. 22 says, At that time the feast of dedication took place. You can write in your margin, Hanukkah. Okay? The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. I don't want to say a lot about it, but Feast of Dedication is in the, isn't in the Old Testament. Um, it's extra-biblical. Uh, Feast of Dedication uh, 167, according to my notes, when the Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes came and violated the temple. 
making unlawful sacrifices in the temple and the people are conquered and the people are oppressed and so the Jews eventually build an army and they do guerrilla warfare training and there's enough of them that they then rebel against Antiochus Epiphanes to overthrow their oppressor led by Maccabeus. Maybe you've heard of the Maccabees and the revolts and and it's that kind of stuff. December of 1964. And so what they did was they rededicated the temple after they overthrew Antiochus and his leaders and they rededicated the temple And it was rejoicing. We're free. No more oppression. And now we can have our temple back. And now there's restoration. Celebrate, 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 celebrate. This is a positive thing. And this is where we have Hanukkah today, December. Okay? It's the overthrow. It's the recapturing, if you will, or the reclaiming. We didn't need to know all that stuff. But I was afraid some of you were going to look up Feast of Dedication in your Old Testament and you'd be there all day. Um, It's not in your Old Testament. But this is when this is happening. Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's a dumb moment, right? Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Oh, another warning passage, another paradigm altering. This might not be the Jesus you learned about in Sunday school passage, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. We're we're running out of time. I just would just encourage you to soak it in. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Yeah, but I thought the way to become a sheep was to believe. You might want to take that up with Jesus. There's a sense in which there's belonging to Him before you belong to Him. It's a plan. It's a purpose. Read Ephesians 1. There's a very real sense that you belong to Him before you believe. And then you belong to Him in a different sense. Yes, you must believe. But make no mistake about it. This is like John 6. John 6 really messes people's theology up and brings it into line with reality. They don't believe because they don't belong to him. Fascinating. It's a challenger. You get the idea, let me do tongue in cheek a little bit. You get the idea that somehow this isn't just made up on the fly, this plan of redemption. It's right. It reaches into eternity past. With love placed on, read Romans 8, beforehand. What what a savior. 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We've already talked about that. 28, I give them, my sheep, the ones I laid my life down for, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How can Jesus give eternal life? I hope you asked yourself the question. How, How could he do this? How could he say, I give them eternal life? How could, he, how could he say that when in other texts he says the way to have eternal life is to keep the commandments? So the way to have eternal life is to have no sin. The way to have eternal life is to love God and love your neighbor. Read Luke 10. Read Matthew chapter 5. That disqualifies everybody except Jesus. So how in the world could Jesus say, I give them eternal life? Because it's based upon him and his work. He's the one who's going to lay his life down. He's going to raise it up again. It's going to be for them. And so it is within his power because of who he is and what he's going to do to give eternal life to those who believe in him. This is awesome. But at first I want you to be saying, how dare he say that? Who does he think he is? The door. Who's the perfectly righteous one who will be the just for the unjust, who will take his life up again because he has authority to do so because of who he is and what he did. This is awesome. 
because his work is vicarious, he can give eternal life. 29 says, and we'll end on this, 29 and 30. My father who has given them to me, all oh, that goes back to this giving them. Who, who, who's he doing this for? He's doing this for those that were given to him by the father. There's a plan. There's a purpose. Those whom he foreknew, oh, they're given to him by the father so he can be their substitute. So he can lay his life down for them. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. His plan complements my plan. Same. I think that's the intent here. And if no one can take them out of his hand, and they can't take them out of my hand, this is impossible. It's the double whammy, which is really the triple whammy. He'll teach us about the Spirit later. My question for you to end with is, what kind of Savior do you have? I hope he's better than the Savior of possibilities. I hope he's a savior who saves. A savior who gives real, genuine assurance. I like it when we sing that song when we, I don't even know the song, I don't even know exactly how it goes, and I'm certainly not going to sing it. That talks about when Jesus went to the cross, he had me on his mind. Theologically, robust, true, accurate. Jesus isn't a nebulous Savior who saves concepts and ideas. Jesus saves people, those whom the Father gave me. They're the ones. I don't know how all this works, but it's pretty amazing. And it is true, when Jesus went to Calvary... He had you on his mind. It's personal. It's amazing. Don't let anyone rob you of that by saying, the intention of the atonement wasn't to atone. You just got robbed of assurance and personal love, care, and encouragement. We better stop, okay? Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who did exactly what he said he was going to do, and he did exactly what you sent him to do. And we are grateful for it. We're grateful for the reality that is salvation in Christ. And as we've been thinking about these things My prayer for us is that we will leave and we will leave enjoying your creation, enjoying the good benefits of living in this world, but that we will, by the power of the Spirit, only be looking to Christ to find our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate deliverance. Because indeed, He delivers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.